Welcome to the 11th podcast in the UNSW Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty. Today's topic is Australia's earliest Great War novels and the uncertainties of wartime. This podcast is sponsored by the Conflict and Society Research Group based at UNSW Canberra, and I'm your host, Ross Mackey. This podcast has been recorded on the grounds of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. UNSW Canberra acknowledges their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Today's presenter is Dr Christina Spatel of UNSW Canberra. She's a senior lecturer in English and Media Studies and an ARC DECRA fellow. Her DECRA project concerns a Cold War book program run out of East Berlin to supply the world with English language paperbacks featuring work by left-leaning authors. Think in the Australian context of Catherine Susanna Pritchard, Alan Marshall and Frank Hardy. With Professor Nicole Moore, she's published a co-edited volume on the fortunes of Australian books in socialist East Germany. Christina has been part of the international Teach and Learn War network and a member of another international group researching the centenary of the Great War. Her work on Australian Great War literature has appeared in numerous journals and collections and on 1914-1918 online, an open access reference work that publishes research from the largest international network of researchers working on the First World War. Today, Christina will talk to us about research from her forthcoming book, The Great War in the Australian Novel, to be published by Sydney University Press in 2021. That book will trace how several generations of Australians have imagined and reimagined the Great War across the 20th century and up to the current moment. Christina argues that Australia's earliest Great War novels were more than just first drafts of the Anzac legend. Rather, they offered themselves as companions through what they openly acknowledged to be difficult, trying and uncertain times. They offered moral support and guidance. They validated and, she says, they unfolded a vision of total war. Christina, welcome to this podcast. Can I ask, what sparked your interest in these Australian novels and in the First World War? Hello, Ross. Thanks for having me and thanks for your generous introduction. My interest in the First World War and in the First World War's literature was sparked by what I think was another period of profound upheaval and uncertainty. Um, I grew up in East Germany and after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when the world seemed our oyster, I decided to spend a school year in England. Um, and that's a mad adventure that my parents almost immediately agreed to. And what happened in England was that I did uh, what they call a GCSE, so it's a sort of year 10 qualification in English literature, among other things. And we read The Lord of the Flies and Romeo and Juliet, those usual suspects. And then we were told that we'd be studying war poetry. And of course, the war of my childhood had been the Second World War. We'd studied that at school from very early on in a lot of different contexts. We still had Soviet soldiers stationed not far from where we lived. And I thought, wow, this is going to be so interesting. But of course, I was thinking about the wrong war, as Jay Winter would say. I was in for a massive surprise. We would be studying the First World War. And I still have those essays, you know, those angry teenage essays about Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen and Rupert Brooke. But what I also took away from this experience was a really deep sense of how the past can look and feel different in different places. 
And an interest, I think, in the relationship between history and memory, what people make of the past. And if you like, the role literature can play in our understanding of that, or misunderstanding if certain military historians are to be believed. And quite a bit later at the University of Tübingen, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I took a course with Professor Barbara Quarter that was entirely dedicated to First World War writing. And because I was very late enrolling in it, for very good reasons, I ended up... I'm sure they were good reasons. They yes. were, because I'd just spent another year somewhere else. And I was really late enrolling. And I ended up <laughs> with a presentation topic that nobody else wanted. That was the last that was left on the list. Australian war poetry. And that was another huge surprise for me because I had no idea that Australians had been involved in this conflict at that time. I had a very Eurocentric understanding of that conflict. And that presentation and that research I did for it went so well and was so enjoyable that I became her research assistant and eventually embarked on a PhD that she supervised and which took me to Australia. (laughs) And the rest is history, as they say. The rest is history and a bit of romance. The um, subtitle that is most beloved of Australian novelists writing novels of the First World War is A Story of Love and War. And this is what this ended up being as well, because I met the man who's now my husband at the Australian War Memorial while I was doing research there. Wow. Oh, it's kind of a cute thing to happen. (laughs) Um, Look, you've mentioned studying the war poets at school in England. Um, And I don't want to pretend that you're older than you really are, but there's been in the last few decades quite significant changes in the way scholars understand and study the literary legacy of the Great War. Um, People have researched neglected literary forms such as the short story or the popular romance novel, and they've unearthed vast numbers of poets and poems that have since been forgotten. They've looked at the role of the theatre in wartime recruitment and post-war commemoration. They've looked at war literature and the market and the role played by the publishing industry. And increasingly, they've insisted that the war's literary history needs to be a genuinely global one if it's to do justice to the war's literary repercussions. Um, In this bigger picture of literature in the First World War, where does your work sit? Where my work sits is that, first of all, you have me nodding very heavily when someone like um, Margaret Higginett says that, you know, we need a really global history of the war. We need a history that takes into account that this was a world war. And we need to stop replicating a kind of European imperialism by suggesting that the benchmark for all war writing are these, you know, this tiny number of war poets that I studied um, at school. These are highly teachable poets. They're incredibly impressive, but they are only the tip of a huge iceberg, as researchers have discovered. In my work, what I do is I kind of add to this vastly expanded archive of Great War literature by delving really deep and trying to locate texts that we haven't really talked about before because they're quite ephemeral. They didn't really outlast their own historical moment. For example, we're going to look at some books from the war years in a minute and none of these books really um, was that lucky to survive its own historical moment. They, they were books of the season um, that had work to do during wartime and later on, the needs of readerships shifted and our understanding of war literature also shifted. So one job that I have given myself is kind of trace this changed understanding of war writing and also to step away, as colleagues overseas have done increasingly, from a kind of false dichotomy 
that has dominated the teaching of war literature for a long time and that still seems to dominate in some places our understanding of it and that is a kind of binary opposition between traditional forms of expression and modern, modernist forms of expression, between feelings of pride and heroism on the one hand and feelings of disillusionment and despair of the futility of war on the other, pro-war, anti-war. These are not really that useful when we come to discussing war writing because very often these writings are much more messy, they're pulling in different directions, they leave room for anxieties and fears, but they also offer a certain degree of, of consolation. So I think stepping away from these kinds of binary worlds and unfolding a fresh map of Australian war writing is the key job of the book and the key argument of the book. And where previous scholars have been quite interested in exploring the history of the Anzac legend through these books and sort of used Anzac as the prism of exploring this literary history, I want to argue that this is actually quite limiting. The Anzac story is a story of exceptionalism and I think we kind of risk repeating it if we just hone in on how novels represent Australian soldiers because that is not all these war novels do and in fact that is not how we define war experience anymore. There's now fascinating new work about the Australian home front from a range of people, especially someone working at Deakin University in Melbourne, Bart Zeno, who has explored the very complex and complicated moral dilemmas that people were facing on the Australian home front. And this is, I think, where those early books, for example, fit in because they can open up a window on how people navigated these and... Um, how they interpreted that experience. Yeah, uh, Christina, I was thinking of Samuel Hines, who's observed how quick English writers were to support the war as writers. Um, people like Arthur Conan Doyle, Lawrence Binion, Rudyard Kipling and May Sinclair signed an author's manifesto in September 1914. That would have been just weeks after the war started. And it was published in The Times and in The New York Times. The writers volunteered their pens, or their typewriters rather, and produced work for the government's secret propaganda bureau located at Wellington House. Publishers such as Hodder and Stoughton also pitched in, lending their imprints for a fee to this government initiative, and they produced books aimed at the American market, but also for circulation back home. Um, publishing sort of took off. Were, were similar things happening in Australia? Well, we certainly know that Arthur Conan Doyle, in his official function or sort of secretive function of one of those propagandists, visited Australian troops in one of their toughest years on the Western Front in 1917 and gave them a glorious write-up. We also have a guest appearance of someone like Edgar Wallace in the Anzac book, an annual produced mainly by soldiers who had served on Gallipoli. Closer to home, we are looking at a very, very different literary ecosystem. So if you think of the UK, what you have in London is the publishing capital of the empire. You've got big players such as Hodder and Stoughton, who are part of an imperial publishing system, and Australia is a destination for their exports of books. It is not yet really um, a player in, in, in making books and producing books. Even a publisher such as Angus and Robertson that has quite a long history and was one of Australia's most important publishers certainly in the first half of the 20th century 
is really in the first instance a bookseller. So the big shop that they have in Sydney is a place where you buy books that are mostly imported from the UK. So what we have in Australia is really fascinating in that we have a kind of volunteer work among writers and writers who become writers because of the war, who write their very first novels because of the war, who are not professional writers at all. And reviewers comment on the fact that some of these books are produced in Australia and they comment on how these are handsome productions that were made locally and that almost becomes a kind of part of the patriotism that you buy something that is produced uh, locally and illustrated as well locally. For example, by Penley Boyd, who was himself a, a soldier of the AIF and a member of the Melbourne Boyd family. What is really fascinating about the First World War, though, is how crucial reading and writing were to the war effort in so many ways. When we think about the immediate pre-war years, we're thinking about an incredibly literate population. Well, that's different to now, isn't it? Because... In the Sydney Morning Herald has been running stories about how poorly um, high school students can read and write. And what you're saying is 100 plus years ago, we had a highly literate society in Australia. We had an incredibly literate society. We had a society used to navigating the world through print, to connecting with the rest of the world through print, through magazines, through book talk. Um, we had oh, and of course newspapers, because there were like hundreds and hundreds of newspapers. They were, and in fact, when you now delve into the archives of Trove, where some of these newspapers have been digitised, you're surprised by how much uptake some of those very popular writers get in the Sydney Morning Herald or the Adelaide Register or the Melbourne Argus. So book talk is everywhere. And we could almost say that the war years were preceded by a kind of reading mania. There was an expectation that there would be war literature. When the first books appear, the reviewers are not at all surprised. They say, well, that was just to be expected. And when you look at ads, it's really interesting. For example, I found some ads from 1916 where Cole's booksellers uh, reminds Australians that books are part of Christmas. And if you want to pack a box for your men at the front, and you should start in July because it took quite a long time to get these shipped over, then you must include some books. The um, Australian historian Amanda Logerson has found a beautiful letter from a soldier on Gallipoli where Ned Barton writes from the dugouts at Anzac Cove to his family, we feel if we don't read, we shall become rabbits purely and simply. So that was also a way of kind of holding on to the pre-war world and, and remaining connected with the folk at home who sent magazines like the Bulletin um, or Australian newspapers or books of the New South Wales Bookstore Company, cheap Australian paperbacks with Australian mystery stories or bushranger tales um, to the front. So reading and writing was a way of participating in the war and sometimes these books were also sold to raise funds for the blind or for the Belgian relief effort. Okay, look, um, you've talked about the Australian novels that were sent to Australian troops fighting at the front, um, but when we think about writers of this period, they're you know often British, Rudyard Kipling, Arthur Conan Doyle, um, and we're still familiar with them, is it also true for the Australian writers who were writing about the war? Um, like, who were they um, and what do we know of them now? Um, 
the Australian writers who were writing about the war, I'm thinking of them in sort of different categories. So there were soldier writers like Oliver Hogue, who was a prominent Sydney Morning Herald journalist um, and who churned out war books while he was serving with the Light Horse overseas. Um, the majority of these writers were civilians. They were writing from the home front and they were writing for the home front. Their writing was part of the war effort. Some of their names are still familiar with Australians who specialise in the study of Australian popular fiction. So someone like Ambrose Pratt or Arthur Wright would have needed no introduction to these scholars. But my editor... Uh, who's editing the series for Sydney University Press that I'm writing for. Robert Dixon keeps telling me, you have to tell us who these writers are. You have to introduce them to your readership. So my census, we've forgotten about these writers. They're very obscure now. Ambrose Pratt was a journalist. He had written um, 20 novels by the time his, his uh, first World War novel comes out. He specialised in all sorts of really thrilling potboilers. Some of them had an international reception, for example. He could write mummy novels about mummies that get unleashed in 19th century London. That was one of his specialties. Sort of zombies. Zombies, that's right. It's yeah. sort of fin de siècle gothic type novels. He wrote an invasion novel. He had bush ranger tales covered. He could write South Sea stories. Those kinds of really, really popular uh, genres. Someone like Arthur Wright, who was a Sydney man, specialised in sporting novels and especially in the horse racing genre. So there's a whole genre of novels about horse racing, about cheating, about the crooks at Randwick and those kinds of pleasures. Sort of like an Australian Zane Grey. Yeah, or an Australian Nat Gold. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And other novelists, whom I'm calling amateurs, were people who reached for the pen because they thought the novel was one way of responding to this war, as one way of doing something. Sometimes they were also engaged in other war work, such as Mabel Balcom Brooks, who was the wife of the first Australian to win Wimbledon, um, Norman Brooks. She wrote two war novels during the war years, and these were her first books. Uh, someone else whom I find really fascinating is Samuel Nisbet Hogg, who was a banker in his 60s from Balmain. And he said in the foreword to his war novel, we cannot all go, but we can all do something. And what he did was write a war novel and then give the rights to that novel to the Sydney Institute for the Blind. So the second edition of that novel had pictures of blind soldiers working in workshops and all the proceeds went to that institute. And of course, the story the actual story of the novel also includes a partially blinded banker who, oh, who wow. comes back yeah. from the war. Um, and so there's a story about how you wait, work your way through the war, how you manage the war, um, how you conduct yourself. And there's this sort of added benefit of, of contributing directly um, by, by donating to this institute. And did these novels appear quickly or were they written after the war? No, they appeared in the war years. They had work to do in the war years, raising funds. So the Sydney banker had his novel out by February 1916. 
And then in the same year, it went into a second print run of 5,000 copies. And that's a lot. If we're thinking of one novel that is perhaps still quite well known from the interwar period, Leonard Mann's Flesh and Armour, which is a novel by a Victorian man of the AIF who came back and wrote a novel as part of the big post-war war books boom, that had a print run of a thousand copies. So five thousand is enormous um, mm. by comparison. Christina, the first novel, the first Australian war novel, you've tracked it down. I've tracked it down. It's falling apart in my hands, as you can see. It's really cheap paper binding. It's got an electric blue cover and bright yellow title, which almost leaps off to tell you it's this urgent reading. Okay, we're, um, you know, we don't have video here, so Christina's holding up a paperback, which is as she described. Is that an original edition? Absolutely. That's the real thing. Wow. It's called War It's actually in the Pac- quite vivid for the time. It looks to me 1950s or something or other. No, no, no. But it's 1914. Yeah, it's 1914. It's got on its cover a boat of men and one woman um, rowing away from an island. You can see an explosion in the back. So this is an adventure story. It's a narrow escape. Um, and it was published by Critchley Parker. And I think that's worth spending half a minute explaining because Critchley Parker was not in the business of producing a national literature and he was also really not interested in celebrating a national history. Critchley Parker was a Melbourne-based publisher and journalist. He was the owner of the Australian Statesman and Mining Standard and what he did during the war years, and you can see this at the back, there's a whole list of publications that you could order from him, is produce propaganda. So there are books about uh, a post-war economic policy that puts Germany in its place. There are close-ups of the German enemy. There is a book that is called The Barbarian and His Methods, Who Lifted the Lid of Hell. Um, (laughs) And you can also order a a military war map from them and track the war down uh, from home on on that thing. And this is published by the end of 1914. So before Christmas, Australia has its first Great War novel. Australians have barely stepped off their troop ships in Egypt. They haven't really done anything much, let's be fair. That didn't stop Ambrose Pratt. It's fantastic. I mean, you described it as propaganda, but it's commercially produced propaganda for a profit. Absolutely. And that's a really interesting way of putting it, I think. There's a really interesting mix of commercial interests and political interests at stake here. And he uses the end papers to give you little summaries of all the other publications that he's got. So there's also a sense that um, the book carries some other messages in its end papers and tries to establish the credentials of this particular publisher and its author who also wrote some of those other propaganda books uh, for him. War in the Pacific was the first Australian yeah. novel. What happens to the later war books? I mean, I'm thinking Gallipoli must have been some sort of turning point, perhaps. Um, is there a difference between the very first war novels that were produced and the later ones? Well, there's actually quite an interesting continuity. And I think, again, that becomes visible when we stop 
obsessing a little bit about Gallipoli and take into account the kind of wider situation that Australians were in. So this book is really about a reluctant soldier. This is at its heart when the Pacific has a flabby British opium addict addict, ex-army surgeon. (laughs) <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> there were too many adjectives, Christina. <laughs> oh, don't edit me. Well, we have at the heart of this book an ex-army surgeon called Ned Harrington who tells his own story. Ned Harrington has some experience from the Afghanistan wars, but we never find out much about that. He is an opium addict. He is surrounded by a group of like-minded um Degenerate, I think people would have said at the time, because that was one of their fears that the British race was degenerating. Um, companions, and they find out about the war, and the first thing they do is they say, "Let's try to pass ourselves off as Americans and just sit this thing out." So there is no war enthusiasm here. There is no sense of this is a national baptism. We can prove that we're real men. None of that. These men try to get away from this and the Germans keep confronting them with what they are really like, with what these Prussians are really like. So it's an atrocity tale and it's a tale of conversion of a reluctant soldier to finally do something and confront these Germans. It really is inspirational. I mean, like for readers at the time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, especially because what this story leaves empty is the kind of role of the plucky Australian. The plucky Australian in pre-war invasion novels would often save the bacon, but in this novel there is no such character. So it's almost as if it's inviting Australian readers to kind of imagine themselves into that position. And later novels still have atrocity propaganda they still show you evil germans up close and there's a remarkable series of reluctant soldiers soldiers who need to be convinced that this is an important war a morally just war that they need to engage in men who have trouble tearing themselves away from their young wives from their families and who are convinced when they read in the newspapers about the sinking of the lusitania and the killing of innocent civilians So again and again, these novels tell you that these men don't leave because they're hungry for glory or because they're keen for adventure. They leave because there's a job to be done. So Mm. that's really, really interesting. Now, Gallipoli is important in some of these novels, but it's always part of a larger story that involves not just the men who are fighting, but also their wives, their mother-in-law, their mothers, their their fathers, their sisters. There's always a sense, as you said at the beginning, um, that this is a total war that demands something of everyone and that the role of the civilian is not just at home, to sit at home and watch and read, but to to get involved. And to um, encourage men to go off and do that job that needs to be doing by the sound of it. That's right, Um, and encourage the women to let them go. Because, of course, if you were only 18, as the son was of the famous writer Steel Rudd, he needed his his parents' permission. He needed his mother and his father to sign on the form. So these books are also aimed at Australians who have big calls to make uh, in the war years about whether they let their children go. So a recruiting 
um, they methodology. Were. In a they sense. were. And yeah. we know, of course, that Australia relied on the volunteer force throughout the war. So the question of this reluctance, the question of the real reason for fighting was a really important one. And the Anzac legend was important in that regard in that it reassured Australians that they could do this. They were good at this soldiering work, but it could only go so far. And what these novels also do is acknowledge the cost of the war, they acknowledge the grief caused by the war, and they provide sort of models of dealing with that, of behaving uh, around the bereaved, for oh, example. Oh, interesting, because... Um you know, the the recruitment thing and the patriotism and the job to be done, creating that enthusiasm and dealing with those who have to approve somebody going. Mm. Um, but there was uh, grief and trauma and things associated with war. Just the number of deaths alone and the casualties on top of that and the types of casualties. Were these themes that emerged in the Australian war novel? Yeah, very strongly. And there, there are a couple of novels where the narrator makes it quite explicit that these stories also deserve to be told. So in John Butler Cooper's novel, Cooey, A Tale of Bushmen from Australia to Anzac, you kind of get the idea that this is just, in inverted commas, a Gallipoli novel, but it also registers what happens in the post office when the cablegram with the casualties arrives and the postmistress has a son in the war and she finds out and she has a heart attack and she dies. So these are quite melodramatic books. They're, they often kind of have a kind of heightened and sensational uh, approach to their narratives. So there are a couple of civilian casualties in these books who simply die of grief. There is a father in the book by our, our Sydney banker, which is called Lights and Shadows in Wartime, and the father receives the message that his son is missing in the war. And he moves heaven and earth to find him. He writes to the Red Cross, he has contacts up high, and finally the news arrives that his son has died, and the father dies at the steering wheel of his car, and we are told that this was an accident. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, do any of the books question the war? One of my favourite books is called um, The Breed Holds Good. And uh, it's sort of, it's a horse racing novel. So the word breed is a, is a, is a kind of pun on the, the breed of the horses and the British race. Um, and that's another novel about a reluctant soldier. And he gets to have all these arguments that this isn't our war. Um, if there's any fighting to be done, we'll do it here. I'm very happy to take up arms, but I'm not going to be exposing myself to German bullets overseas. So you, you do see anti-war arguments, but they're usually put either in the mouths of morally corrupt characters who still <laughs> need to be reformed, and this character will be, um, or Germans and other saboteurs. So Arthur Wright, the author of this particular novel, is one of the staunchest patriots in that period among those novelists, and he lumps all the war protesters against together as they kind of German enemy aliens, international wo workers of the world. They're all one group that are seeking to undermine uh, the, the war effort with alcohol and with sabotage. A bit sort of like cartoon 
characters. Yes, you know, very much. The ones who wear white and have clean teeth. They're all all right, but the the ones That's wear right. black clothes and smoke and drink, you know, they're yeah. all the baddies. They are yeah. the affordances of melodrama, the sort of heightened mode of of capturing villains and 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 you know, good people. On the other hand, um, these these books are, are fascinating. They um, are, aren't they? Yeah, the uh, it's um, I think they'd make really good reading now because we've got that sort of ironic attitude to them, but. I've never heard of most of these. What you know? What happened to these writers? What happened to them after the war? Why aren't the books around anymore? Well, the Breed Holds Good is republished several times in the 1920s. So 1918 is not an abrupt point where all interest in the war suddenly ceases and there's a huge gap before people start writing again, as has often been claimed. So we see a kind of trickle of these books into the 1920s. But then what happens in the 1920s and 30s is that the soldiers take over the pens and the typewriters and the definition of war novel changes to become one of military experience with some civilians in the margins, often French civilians or Turkish civilians sometimes. But the clear heroes of these books, the lead characters, are now the men themselves. The location of the war is the trench and the battlefield overseas. So there's a sense <clears throat> in which the very the very definition of a, of the of the genre changes and these books are never reprinted really with some very few exceptions. Steel Rudd's war novel gets a reprint in the 1970s, but none of these books feature in the centenary war books boom. The centenary war books boom really brings us a raft of new novels. Um, and these novels have been forgotten. I think our tastes in reading have changed. I mean, you found it hard to take some of them seriously, right? And that leads me back to one of the bigger arguments, I guess, that I'm trying to make in the book, that this is a very truncated history with stops and starts, with bursts of action and then moments of obscurity, um, that we don't really have a kind of long Anzac parade of these novels that connects us of seamlessly with those fighting the war, worrying about their loved ones in 1914, 1915, with those writing and reading about the war today. It's, it's fascinating. Um, it, of course, makes sense that it's only after the war when uh, the soldiers return that we get the war experience writing because, you know, they weren't around to do it before then. Um, <clears throat> look, Christina... Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating uh, discussion and you've uncovered these marvellous novels that I'd really like to um, to read. So um, if anyone listening to this is a publisher, there's an opportunity <laughs> for you. Um, again, Christina, thank you so much. This was the 11th episode of UNSW Canberra's Navigating Uncertainty podcast series. Please join us again when we will explore why biodiversity loss is a growing risk for business. Thank you and goodbye.